if you've been a Christian for a short time or for a long time, uh, you've likely heard someone talk about the rapture. Many of you have heard about it. Some of you are visiting tonight. Maybe some people watching online aren't sure where it is. Uh, some people are probably blogging online right now wanting to argue with me about what I'm going to say about the rapture. I say, wait until I'm done talking about the rapture. Well, we want to see what it is. What is the rapture? Is it actually taught in the Bible? If so, when is the rapture going to take place? So my, my intent tonight is to help everyone understand what the Bible actually says about the subject of the rapture and what the Bible does not say about the rapture also. And if you know what it is already, then you know something about the rapture. The rapture, quite honestly, is this event that just sounds really weird. It sounds kind of fairy tale ish It sounds like it, it can't actually happen. It doesn't make any sense. Does the Bible actually teach that there's going to be a, a group of people who are alive, they are raptured, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and then after they're caught up, judgment comes upon the world. The whole thing sounds bizarre. It's never happened quite like that before in Mass. When you look at the Bible, you find out that Elijah was raptured, and also Enoch was. But in Mass, it's never happened. Like, this doesn't make any sense. But neither did it make sense when Noah made an ark, and he and his family got into the ark, and then judgment came upon the earth. That didn't make any sense to the people of that day either. And I'll tell you, the rapture doesn't make any sense to us right now also. But here we begin chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Revelation. And this is what John writes. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. After what? What is John talking about? After these things. Let me show you what's going to take place after this. Come up here, John. I'm going to show you what's going on. All right? So that sets the course for the direction that we are going. Now remember, the book of Revelation, this is the last time we're going to see it on Sunday nights, because everything changes from here on out. The book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 19, is the only book in the Bible that has its own divine outline. Chapter 1 in the book of Revelation is the past. Chapters 2 and 3, where we have been and where we are today, is the present. That's where the the Lord is writing to the seven churches of the present church age. And the future starts, chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. So John is writing after these things, after the church age is done. In fact, chapter 1, verse 19 says this. Here's the divine outline. This is Jesus talking to John. Write the things which you have seen. Chapter 1, the past. And the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the present. And the things which will take place after this. The future. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, John writes. Come up here, he hears. The trumpet sound. Let me show you what will take place after this. In fact, the term after this and after these things, chapter 4, verse 1, is the Greek metatauta. 
is the same term that's used here in chapter 1, verse 19. For the future, let me show you what will take place after this. Meta Tauta. So after what? After the church age is done. Does it all develop like that? You better believe it does develop like that. So with that, I believe that the Bible is very clear on teaching the rapture. And I know that there's some people that uh, may be joining us in here tonight that might think differently. Definitely people online that like to argue about those kinds of things. But we're going to break it down and see uh, what the Bible actually says regarding the rapture. So the first question is this. Uh, number one, what is the rapture? Well, the rapture is the gathering of believers into heaven with Christ and the translation of their bodies from mortal to immortal. Right? We are mortal bodies. We're going to be translated. We're going to be changed. From corruptible, we are corrupt, to incorruptible. Does the Bible actually teach that? Yes, it does. And I will show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you can turn there. In fact, if the Bible didn't teach it, I wouldn't be teaching it either. But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50, if you could turn there. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. This is Paul writing, and this is what Paul says. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption, right? So there it is. You're corrupted. We're going to go to heaven. There is no corruption in heaven. You want to go to heaven? Something has to change with our bodies in order for us to inherit incorruption, in order for us to be in the presence of the Lord. Chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It is a mystery. It does not make any sense what Paul is saying. Try to figure this out. It's kind of weird. It's a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, not everybody's going to die. But, he says, we will all be changed. For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the I can't Oh, thank you for stopping it. That even scared me. You know what? I have this theory. If you can't have fun in church, if you can't have fun as a Christian, I mean, seriously, you will never forget that you just heard the trumpet sound. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, chapter 15, verse 52, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible and will be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So what's going on here? He's saying, we're corrupted. We die. And the dead are going to be raised and taken into the presence of the Lord. And they must put on incorruption. They are going to get a 
new body. Right now when a believer dies, their spirit goes into the presence of the Lord, but their body lays in the grave. And by the way, I get this question a lot. Well, what happens if a person is cremated? What happens to their body? God's the one who made the DNA, right? God can put that body back together, and He's going to give us a new body. So don't worry about that, all right? But the dead are going to put on incorruption. But He also says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Not all are going to sleep. In other words, not all are going to die. Think of it like this. In the Gospel of John... When Lazarus had died, Jesus told his disciples, we must go see Lazarus, for he is asleep. And his disciples are are, are like, um, uh, uh, well, if he's asleep, let him rest. Why do we have to go? Why do we have to go bug Lazarus? He's not asleep like you're thinking asleep, Jesus. He's dead. And by the time they got on the scene, Lazarus had been dead for four days. So Jesus was using that that word illustration as the body looks like it's asleep so that's what paul is saying here there are those who are not going to sleep there are those who are not going to be dead who are also going to put on the incorruption at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound in the moment in the twinkling of an eye and we all will be changed okay simple enough so far do we see this anywhere else in the bible Yes, we do see this elsewhere in the Bible, which also leads us to our second official question. Number two, is the word rapture in the Bible? Because this is one that so many people want to argue with me about. And if you've ever mentioned the term rapture to one of your Christian friends, you will run into at least a dozen Christian friends out of 13 people that will say, well, my pastor says that the word rapture is not in the Bible. All right? So we're going to fix this whole concept for all of us to help us understand. Is the word rapture taught, is it in the Bible? Well, yes and no. Now here's the scoop. The word trinity is not taught in the Bible. You will not find the word trinity in your concordance. Does the Bible teach the trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? All right? You will not find the word rapture in your concordance either. Does the Bible teach the rapture? I'm going to show you, all right? Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so you have this teaching in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, right? The corruptible must put on incorruption. The trumpet's going to sound at the last trumpet. There are some who will not asleep who will not be asleep, but they also will be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, we have more detail about this subject that some call the rapture. And this is what we read here. Ready? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. So in other words, Paul's saying, I want you to understand this. Don't put your head in the sand. Don't pretend like the Bible doesn't teach this. Don't pretend like God doesn't say this is actually going to happen. I do not want you as a follower of Christ to be ignorant. That's what he's saying here. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So again, that term sleep is used for dead. Concerning those who have died, those who are in Christ. So you do not have to sorrow as those who have no hope. In other words, If your friend died in Christ and you're in Christ, 
You don't have to sorrow as though you have no hope. You know that that friend that's asleep in Christ or dead in Christ, oh man, they're in the presence of the Lord. And one day, Paul's going to teach us a second, they're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and get a new body. So you don't have to sorrow as those who have no hope. There is a future and it's a glorious one. For if we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. If Jesus died and rose again, your friend that died in Christ will also rise again. That's what Paul is teaching here. Verse 15, for this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who have died. So what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? There is a, a people that's, that's not going to sleep. And they are going to put on incorruption. He's saying the exact same thing using different words here. There are those who will not fall asleep, who will not die. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. There it is. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in there. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That is comforting, isn't it? So there's a lot of people that say, well, the rapture is not taught in the Bible. The word rapture is not in the Bible. Everything we just read... This is what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That there are, a believer dies, they go into the grave. And there's also going to be a generation of believers that are not going to die. The trumpet is going to sound, the Lord is going to say, come up here like he did to John in chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Revelation. After these things, after the church age is done, it's going to happen. Come up here. The group that's alive is going to be caught up to meet the Lord in there. And those whose bodies are in the grave that are in the Lord, that died in the Lord, they are going to rise up to meet the Lord in there. Their spirits are going to be joined with their bodies. God is going to give them a new body, and He's going to give those believers that are alive. He is going to instantaneously change us in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But does the Bible teach... Why isn't the word rapture in the Bible? Real simple. So verse 17 says, we will be caught up. There's a group of people that will be caught up to meet the Lord in their Christians. A generation caught up to meet the Lord in there. The Greek word is harpazo. It means a strong, irresistible force to pluck, to pull, to seize. You're standing here, poof, you're caught up. Irresistible, you will be seized up where to meet the Lord in the air, all right? So you say, well, that's harpazo, that's caught up. The word rapture still isn't in the Bible. Okay, well, I'm going to make it real simple then, okay? The word rapture comes from rapier, which is the Latin translation of caught up. So harpazo is the Greek translation of caught up, right? And, and rapier is the Latin translation of caught up. So, if you want to say whether or not the word rapture is in the Bible, it depends. Coming from the Latin translation, yes. Uh, but if you want to, does the Bible actually teach the rapture? Well, it, it does. So you can call it what you want if you stick with these terms, because this is what the Bible sticks with. Um, you can call it the great harpazo. That sounds kind of cool, doesn't it? Like Ringling Brothers, the great harpazo. 
uh, the great, the, the harpazo, excuse me, uh, the catching up to be caught up and remain and, and be gathered together with the Lord, or the rapture from the Latin term "rapier." Nevertheless, the Bible does teach the rapture, and when you follow it through the languages, yes, the rapture is there. So, number three, third question is, who goes up in the rapture? Well, I'm going. I hope y'all are going too. But I'm going. I had a friend of mine who said to me years ago, we're still good friends, and he said, you know, he was struggling with some things, and he said, you know, I'm kind of worried that I'm going to miss the rapture, because what if I am doing such and such right when the trumpet sounds? And I said, bummer, bro. I'm leaving without you. No, I believe that um, our worthiness is in Christ, and uh you, you don't see, at least I don't believe it, and I'll show it to you in just a second, that it demands a life of perfection for you to be caught up in the rapture because I've got news for you. If that's the case, none of us are going up in the rapture, right? Jesus was the only perfect one. But there, there are those who, who uh, dispute that all believers in Christ are going up in the rapture, the, the harpazo, the catching up. And they say, well, that's not going to happen. Teachers who teach the Bible does teach the rapture. They'll say, well, not everybody who's a believer in Christ is going up in the rapture. They call it the partial rapture theory. They say Christ will only come for those who are watching for Him. And they will use uh, scriptures like this, where Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 21, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So the thought here with the partial rapture thinking is that uh, you must be worthy, right? To be able to be caught up, because that's what Jesus says there. That you're kind of worthy to escape these things. Now I want you to think of that passage, Luke 21. And then also here's another one that's often used. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 41. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Okay, now here's a problem with this, alright? And I know I have friends that have argued back and forth on this passage and the one in Luke 21 where you'd be kind of worthy to escape. If you look at these passages in context, these passages in context are speaking about the time specifically to the Jews where Jesus is talking about them in Jerusalem where Jesus says, for example, in Matthew chapter 24, when he tells you to beware of the abomination of desolation that Daniel the prophet wrote about, and, he, and then he told us to under, or the Bible tells us to understand these things. And then Jesus warns, when you see the abomination of desolation take place in Jerusalem, flee from Judea, get out of Judea. If you are pregnant, woe to you, right? And woe that your flight will not be on the Sabbath. What happens? What does Jesus warn him? There, this is when the really bad part of the tribulation begins. The Antichrist uh, proclaims that he is God. He sits in the temple to be worshipped as God. Hence the abomination of desolation. It's at that moment that he turns all of his attention to destroying the Jewish people. The mass holocaust that he wants to commit against them. That is worse than what Hitler has done. It's hard to believe, but that is what the Antichrist is going to do. So Jesus warns about that. 
So the warning that Jesus gives us in this passage in Luke 21 about being worthy to escape is to the Jewish people when you look at it in context during the tribulation period. It's not the rapture in context. And so what happens? Well, if it's not the rapture in context, the partial rapture theory begins to fall apart. Because the partial rapture theory is teaching you won't go through the tribulation. Well, they're saying, well, pray that you are worthy to escape. Well, that's talking to the Jews, and that's talking about the, the, the whole abomination of desolation and destruction coming upon the Jewish people that happens somewhere around the midpoint of the tribulation period. So it, it doesn't mesh with being caught up to meet the Lord in the air and escaping the judgment that is coming. Um, the things don't uh, fit together. The, the problem, another problem with the partial rapture theory, I'm going to show you what a few of them are in just a second, is it's like this. If you're not good enough, is what the thought is. If you're not good enough, if you're not worthy to meet the Lord in the air, then it's like you're, you go to LAX and you're waiting for a plane, and the flight attendant kicks you off and says, well, you, you're, you're not good enough to be on this plane, you're going to have to wait for another one. It's kind of like that. You're going to be stuck at LAX for, uh, until the Lord decides you're good enough. Then you can come up the next time there's a rapture call. Uh, but but doesn't, the whole thing doesn't gel out because the whole premise of it is that you are the one who's worthy enough. There's none who are worthy enough. None of us are perfect. Our worthiness is only in the Messiah who has come and has forgiven us of our sin. A few problems with the partial rapture theory. I'll get through these as quickly as I can. But this is for your brain power because we all need it. The partial rapture theory undervalues the death of Christ on the cross by saying some who have received the salvation aren't really acceptable to God. Ah. But what does the Bible say? Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 1 Peter chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So the partial rapture theory is saying, well, Christ's blood isn't good enough for some of y'all. What else with the partial rapture theory? Well, it denies the unity of the body of Christ, yet the Bible teaches the unity of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. We're all part of the body of Christ. One body. It'd be like pulling off your arm, right? Oh, the rest of you can go, but the arm's staying, or something like that. That's the, the concept. And the, one of the problems with the partial rapture theory is, Scripture goes on to say, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Last one I'll show you, for, and then we'll move on is the partial rapture theory contradicts the completeness of the resurrection of believers. Going back to the first passage that we looked at, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Okay, now look at this. Paul writes, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed, right? So not all of us are going to die, 
There's a generation of believers that are going to be harpazoed to meet the Lord in the air. Not all of us will die, but all. What, how many is all? 100%, right? It's not, so the Bible does not teach a partial rapture theory. Number four, when will the rapture occur? Uh, occur? I'm hoping soon. But nobody knows the day or the hour. So instead of getting into the specifics, let's get into some generalities to help it make sense for all of us. All right? There are three primary theories on when the rapture is going to occur. I mean, you get into the feast days of Israel and all these things. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about, is it a post-tribulation rapture? Is it a mid- or pre-wrath rapture? Or is the rapture a pre-tribulation rapture? Well, here's, I'll give you the three views. The post-tribulation rapture view says this, or teaches this, that the rapture takes place at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and that believers must go through the tribulation period. So what's the tribulation period? It's the period of seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. It's a time when God has, has turned His attention to working with the nation of Israel specifically again. So the post-trib view says, well, the church is going to go through the seven-year tribulation period, and a lot of people that I know that support that view say, well, why should the church be raptured out? Uh, but they don't understand the wrath of God. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, the mid-tribulation view teaches that the rapture takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation when the Antichrist sits in the temple demanding to be worshipped as God. Right? This theory is also called the pre-wrath uh, rapture. It's the belief that the rapture comes somewhere near the middle of the tribulation period, and just before the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist sits in the temple demanding to be worshipped as God, the rapture takes place at that point. Right? And then there is the pre-tribulation rapture view. And this teaches that the rapture takes place before the start of the seven-year tribulation period. Now, just for the record... And this is what's going to get everybody mad at me, all worked up on the blog site. I believe in the pre-tribulation view. And I'm going to tell you why. I believe it's all because of God's covenant with the Jewish people and the land of Israel itself. The seven years that we call the tribulation period is the 70th week of the 70 weeks of Daniel that are determined for the Jewish people and for the nation and the land of Israel. The 70 weeks are not about the church. Put on your thinking cap for just a few more minutes, all right? I promise we won't go real late tonight like we did last night. For the post-tribulation rapture to be true, it must ignore God's plan and covenant with Israel. In the Old Testament, God said that because of Israel's disobedience, He would scatter them to the four corners of the earth, but in the last days He would gather them back again because He's going to turn His attention to do it, uh, to, to work with His people again. He had a covenant with Abraham, and that covenant was a forever covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and His descendants, which is the Jewish people. He said He would do it, and He will do it, and God will use the tribulation to bring the Jews to faith in Yeshua. 
That is the scriptural purpose of the tribulation period. Remember in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, if you're familiar with it, the angel tells Daniel, 70 works are determined for your people. Who's Daniel's people? The Jewish people, right? And for your holy city. What's the holy city? It's the city of Jerusalem, right? So also your people uh, is described this way in Jeremiah chapter 30. Alas, for that day is great. Talking about the 70th week of Daniel, right? That day is great so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is another name for Israel or for the Jewish people. So a post-tribulation rapture denies the Israel-centeredness of the tribulation and it makes it about the church. The church is going to go through the tribulation and it takes all the attention off of Israel. That is not what God intends. The tribulation period is primarily about God redeeming His people, the Jews. Listen, in fact, there's two things you can point out that God does during the tribulation period. You ready? Number one is He shakes up the world. That Think of the Gentile world, right? Although Israel's going to be shaken up too. But He shakes up the world. Uh, number two, God wakes up the nations. He is waking up the Jewish people. And when they go through the tribulation period, by the time they get to the end of the tribulation period, they're going to recognize who the Messiah is and they will worship Him as Lord. Think of it like this. If you're with us this morning, we went through the, the message on the prodigal son, right? If you're with us, if you weren't with us, here's what happens with the prodigal son. The prodigal son said, I do not want to stay here in my father's house. He leaves his father's house, takes all of his inheritance, he goes to a far country, a foreign country. There is a great famine in the land. There's destruction in the land. He's there in the land. He's a Jewish kid. He's there in a foreign country. He finds himself just to be able to eat, working on a pig farm. And then he begs just to be able to eat the pig's food. And then the Bible tells us, Jesus himself says, but nobody would come to his help. Nobody would come to the prodigal son's rescue. What happened? He is all alone. He's destitute. He is about dead. He's about destroyed. And it's at that point where he turns and he goes back and he, and he goes back home to his father. With the nation of Israel, a very similar dynamic takes place during the tribulation period. They've abandoned, in a sense, God their father. Did you know that 85% of the Jewish people do not have any type of relationship with God? I'm not talking about just Yeshua. I'm just talking about God in general, right? Agnostic, atheistic, 85%. But God is going to wake them up. So in a sense, they have left God. There's a lot of religious Jews over in Israel. I've met them. But God is bringing them back. They've left. And when it comes to the tribulation period, they're going to find out what we are watching already is Israel's going to be all alone. The Jewish people collectively are going to be left all alone. And there's judgment. There's famine on the entire land, the whole world. As God is shaking up the world, He's also waking up a nation. And the nation of Israel is going to realize, like the prodigal son, they have nobody to help them. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to turn back and they're going to go to the Father and they are going to worship Yeshua. That is what the Lord is doing. The tribulation period, understand this, it is about primarily God's 
attention on the Jewish people. It's not the church. So the post-tribulation rapture doesn't make sense. Even the mid-tribulation rapture doesn't make sense for the pre-wrath because of the same reason. It's the 70th week of Daniel. The entire seven-year period is about Israel. Romans chapter 11 tells us this way. Uh, Has God cast away his people? That's the Jews, right? Certainly not. Notice with an exclamation mark. God knew that the day would come when people would be teaching replacement theology that God has done with Israel. So he puts this in the Bible for us. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel. That's what we see now with so many Jews who are not believing God. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the time of the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are done. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation begins. After these things, until the time of the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. Listen, I'm going to tell you something, all right? There's a lot of anti-Zion teaching that's out there. I believe it's very anti-Semitic. And I'm going to say something. I'm a Christian Zionist. And that gets people so angry. I believe, and I can prove it in the Bible, that God gave the land of Zion. God gave Jerusalem to the Jewish people. And God, is, His attention is going back there once again. Boy, does that get people riled up. And He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Ah, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When does that happen? I'm going to tell you right now, all right? So the tribulation period, you get it, is about Israel. Make sense? And by by the way, regarding it being about Israel, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Revelation, you have the church mentioned 19 times. Chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through the end of the book of Revelation, the church is never mentioned, not even once. It's because the tribulation period is about God fulfilling His promise to the people of Israel. But listen to this, right? So God says He's going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Where do we see that in the Old Testament? I'm going to read it to you right now. Daniel chapter 9, listen to these words. You've heard these a thousand times, but now you have a whole different perspective. You ready? Listen to this. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. That's the seventh, the the seven-year tribulation period, the the last of the 70 weeks, or the 70th of the 70 weeks, for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal a vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and even the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, or after the total of the sixty-nine weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. In other words, he would be crucified, but not for himself. In other words, he was crucified for anyone who would believe in him. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. The end of it will be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one week. And in the middle of the week, he will break that covenant. 
the whole thing, the entire tribulation period, is about Israel and the Jews being redeemed to God. It's the prodigal son, so to speak, turning back to their father. There is nobody that is going to turn to rescue Israel. And they're going to turn to God. And God is the one that is going to turn and rescue him. I think it's totally awesome. When I think of that and I think what is coming, this is what hurts though. This is what hurts. Is I know what's going to come upon non-believing Jews, non-Messianic Jews during the tribulation period. It's an awful thing. It's an awful thing that's going to be happening throughout the whole world. It's going to be awful what's happening to the Jews during the tribulation period. Uh, the Antichrist is going to go after them. But I do know this, that God is going to redeem His people and that is what the tribulation period is about. It is not about the church. God is going to get the church out of the way. Uh, so when you look at it, the Bible also tells us this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that God did not appoint us to wrath. He didn't appoint us to wrath. In fact, can I read this passage to you too? You know how I said it wasn't going to be really long tonight? It's almost, I'm almost done. I'm just joking. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm going to read it in context. He first just finished, Paul did, talking about getting caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 4, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 1. But the, concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. In other words, you ought to know. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night or not of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath. The entire context of the catching up, the harpazo, the rapier, the rapture of the church is all centered in this context of the wrath of the tribulation that is coming and the time when God turns His attention again to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people to wake them up that they will come back to Him. Simple enough? Can I finish with one last thing? It's this. What happens to the church after the rapture? I think that's a really good question. You want me to answer it? I can leave it there. I could. I could, but I can tell how much longer you want me to go. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is what happens. This is what many believe happens anyways. I'm not so sure about the timing of it. But according to the grace of God, chapter 3, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians According to the grace of God which was given to me, Paul writes, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, eat, listen to this, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, 
yet so as through the fire. Let's talk about a reward system, right? There's a judgment coming, the judgment seat, the bema seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, as a Christian, we are not going to be judged for our sins. Jesus was judged for our sins. But what we do, motive-wise, our, our heart's intent, um, the gossip we have, just stuff, right? Uh, all those things are going to be brought into account, and we are going to be rewarded accordingly to how we have lived our Christian life, whether or not we share Christ with others. You know, Christians will say, oh man, I just hope that people get saved and so forth, but they, they won't tell their co-worker about Jesus. They're, they're afraid that their co-worker might make fun of them or not talk to them or their neighbor or something like that. But nevertheless, all the works we do will be caught, will be brought into an account. If you're saved, you might not get a reward saved as if by fire. In other words, you're still going to get into heaven, but your rewards are going to be really limited if you're not living for Christ. But if you're living for Him, man, the rewards are going to be incredible. So there are many people that believe when the rapture takes place, that that's when the rewards are passed out. I'm not so sure on the timing of the rewards, but I know do know that God does have that criteria because He tells us here, uh, right there in the Bible. But what are we encouraged to do then? I'll give you just a couple of scriptures. Here they are. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved this appearing. So based on this, there are people who believe, teachers that believe, the rewards are passed out on that day when we are caught up to meet the Lord. But also there's a reward just for loving His appearing. This is what's so cool with you guys, right? You guys come on Sunday nights. Um, you must love his, the thought of His appearing or you wouldn't come so often on Sunday nights. There's a reward just for that. And when people say you're nuts and they mock you and they tell you you're crazy, say, praise the Lord, I'm getting a reward because I love the thought of His appearing. Man, it's the thought of His appearing that keeps me pressing forward. What else should we be doing? Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, if the rapture didn't take place before the wrath of God was poured out on the unbelieving world, if it didn't take place then this verse right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18 wouldn't make sense. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Because it was right after the Apostle Paul said, you'll be caught up to meet the Lord in there. And then after that, it's therefore comfort one another with these words. Nine verses later, you are not appointed to wrath. Amen?